according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 4 once again this evening. Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And so we're discussing the nature of affliction or uh, fellowship in afflictions. And that's what the verse is dealing with there. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness in our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for tonight and the blessing we have to assemble together. I thank You for the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that teaches us, that opens the eyes of our understanding. Father, uh, teach us tonight as we study to show ourselves approved. We want to learn Your truth so we can live it in our lives and give glory to Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father, and we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'll take a few minutes for some questions. If we have any questions tonight, the microphone's ready to go. Appreciate that. So uh, who has a question? Anyone? Seems like I'm getting more questions by email and then getting into arguments on Facebook. That's no fun. So uh, let me ask you something. If, if, uh, if you die tonight, where are you going? You're going to heaven? I had a man on Saturday tell me, no, no, nobody goes to heaven. Not until the rapture, not until the resurrection. That uh, so, and and he's right in the sense that at the rapture of the church, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so uh, he is correct as far as that goes, but he's wrong to say that we're not in heaven yet while we're waiting for the resurrection. Second Corinthians five talks about a an interim body that we receive. A, a we get clothed in the meantime with this body this house that's made without hands that the Father clothes us with so that we're not naked for 2,000 years while we're waiting for the rapture of the church. You know, so, um, and I asked him, I said, well, what do you do with, with a passage that says, absent from the body and at home with the Lord? You know, if they're not in heaven, where are they? If they're at home with the Lord. I believe that the Lord's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God the Father and He's in heaven. He's been preparing a place for us. And so, if we die, you know, and, and he just kept going on and on about, no, 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 you don't, no one's resurrected until, until the rapture. I, said, I get that, I get that, but you're still in heaven while you're waiting for the resurrection. So anyway, it was just a, a very difficult question and, and uh, awkward argument on Facebook. So I'm glad that's over and done with. But we have a question over here that should be less argumentative. All right. Yeah, mine has to do with 1 John 1, 9. Uh-huh. So I heard something on the radio that it confused me a little bit. Um, when Christ died on the cross, he, he obviously bore the price for our, our sins, past, mm-hmm. present, future. Um, so 1 John 1, 9, then it says we, you know, if we name or cite our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Now, is the sin being forgiven? Because I always understood unrighteousness to be the same as sin. Mm-hmm. Yes, it okay. is. So was were the sins forgiven at the time he died on the cross? Mm-hmm. Or just okay, so we're asking for forgiveness again. Yes, we're asking for forgiveness again because there's okay. forgiveness that's used in two senses. The positional forgiveness and then the experiential forgiveness that centers on our fellowship. 
And so uh, when we're saved, of course, our sins are eternally forgiven. Mm -hmm. But then when we are out of fellowship and we confess our sins to be restored to fellowship, then we are temporally forgiven, forgiven within time. And so, uh, and which is why he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, because we're already eternally forgiven. How could he not temporally forgive us? Right. And so the fact that we're eternally forgiven, that Christ has paid that penalty, that's the basis for why we can be forgiven in time for the fellowship sins that we have to confess. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's the, that's the basis on that. But some people struggle with First John 1, 9, and, and I was on a plane with a lady once and she told me, you know, once you're forgiven, then that's it. You're not a sinner anymore and you never have to confess ever again. And I'm like, ooh, you got a lot to confess then because <laughs> that's not true. You know, we continue to sin after we're saved. And that's why we have 1 John 1, 9. So that's a great question. I appreciate that. All right, other questions tonight? Going once, going twice. All right, you're being too nice to me. That's good. All right, then Philippians chapter 4. Thank you, Christopher. Appreciate that. Really, uh, in all of these verses from 10 to 13, I think we've done pretty well uh, so long as we stop and we retranslate some of the things that are uh, really uh, idiomatic as they're brought across into the New American Standard Translation or other modern English translations. And when we have little things in here like uh, get along, I know how to get along, uh, I know how to live, uh, little things like that where the, the, the translators are taking the, the actual Greek verbs and they're they're bringing them into an application because clearly the context is financial. There's no question the context is financial. He's talking about the money that they sent and how he's thankful for their gift and, and uh, how during thin times you, you do learn how to get along with humble means. But really that's this kind of an idiomatic expression and it, it just centers on being humbled. And so I think I would prefer, from my understanding anyway, to not be so flowery with the language and just take it literally and just kind of give it a real rough literal rendering. I know how to be humbled and I know how to abound. I know how to be humbled and I know how to abound. And that's true financially. It's also true in in other contexts for our daily life. Um, And if we keep it that simple, then we're going to be helped out later when those same terms come back. Because the in everything and in everything, we've already seen it here, in verse 12, I've, uh, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. So in any and every circumstance, where well, there's no word for circumstance, it's just a thing, all right? In anything, in everything. And so I don't mind the translation circumstance. However, it can lead to some confusion if you don't keep it consistent because then you get to verse 13 and it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And really, you've got to stop and say, wait a minute. It's that same idea that we had when we were talking about circumstances. And so really, I have strength for every circumstance. What's wrong with that? That keeps it consistent with how I handled the terms in verse 11 and in verse 12. Just keep it the same when we get to verse 13. And so I have strength for all circumstances through the one who continually empowers me that to me communicates. That to me makes sense. That's what the verse is all about. It's not a verse that's giving me superpowers. I'm not turning into Spider-Man or, or Thor or any superhero where, well, I can do all things. That means I can, I can stop bullets. I can, I can, you know, I can fly. No, I can't fly. If I jump off a bridge, I'm going to crash. I'm going to, you know, I can't 
I'm abusing the text. If I take this, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, and, and name it and claim it like a prosperity gospel kind of approach. That's just wrong. So really, I do, uh, I like the translation uh, related to competence that we were looking at here in point three. I presently continuously have strength for all conditional circumstances of personal life. That's what it's about. When he says in any and every circumstance, he's talking about the conditional circumstances of personal life. And so we all have a personal life, right? We, whether we're single or we're married or we're widowed or whatever we are, we have our personal life. And our personal life centers on you know, our health and our income and our occupation and where we live and our neighbors and, and just all of the circumstances of personal life. And uh, in any of those circumstances, there's no circumstance of personal life that will hinder you from obeying the will of God, from walking the, the walk of faith, from uh, the ministry pursuits that He's called us to do, because we can do all things. And uh, this is what it comes down to. So I presently continuously have strength for all conditional circumstances. That includes, uh, and, and trust me, I'm preaching to myself for the last month now related to uh, conditional circumstances of, of an elderly parent. All right, well those are conditional circumstances. And I'm not the first human in the history of mankind that's had an elderly parent uh, in dealing with those things. So um, is, it, uh, is it my wisdom I need to find? No, it's His wisdom I need to find. Is it my strength? No, it's His strength as He continues to pour the power. So really uh, this gets to become a pretty personal lesson very quickly. All right, so then we get to the admission in verse 14. He says, you know what, I don't need your money, but I'm glad you are fellowshipping with me in my afflictions. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, even though he has strength for everything, he says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. He says, it's a good thing. I don't need your money. I'm content without it. God's still faithful. But now that you've sent it, it it's a good thing. And I'm thankful, not for the money necessarily, but for their fellowship. The fact that they had a personal interest in what he was struggling with. That meant a lot to him. That meant, a lot, that meant everything, see. And so when we're talking about this, although Paul can function contentedly without the Philippian support, it is a good thing for them to share his affliction. It is a good thing, all right? And we, we need to consider that when we're sending our missionary funds to the different places. We're not just sending funds to, the, to these countries uh, with a disinterested attitude as far as what they're doing with it and what they're struggling through and all the rest. We are to become uh, in, in fellowship with their struggles as we support them financially. And that's uh, really the issue here. It is a synchronized fellowship. You have koinoneo, the verb koinoneo, which we know is a, is a common word for fellowship, that you have in common. But it has that soon prefix on the front of it. So it's soon koinoneo, which means we have a synchronized fellowship that we are participating in their uh, afflictions and their testings and their situation, all right? And so uh, for a verb that's really only used three times in the New Testament, it's not hard to figure out what it's talking about with soon koinoneo, uh, Ephesians 5.11, Revelation 18.4, where in both of those cases it's translated participate in, participate in. Let me just grab these. We looked at them on Sunday, but uh, some of you weren't here and others of you were sleeping, so... <laughs> Tease, I'm just teasing. As uh, repetition's a good thing, we can review 
And even if you were here on Sunday, and even if you were awake on Sunday, it's still good to get this a second time. So Ephesians 5.11, when believers are warned, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. That you're a believer now. And those things you used to do as an unbeliever, that's not for you anymore. And maybe it was fun back in the day, but that's not your new life. You have a new life in Christ. So they, the, those that are still walking in darkness, Ephesians 5, they're still walking in darkness, don't join with them. That's not your new life in Christ. So it says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And the word there for participation is the word we're looking at tonight. It's our soon quenoneo term. Likewise in Revelation 18.4, this is a, a prophecy about uh, the tribulation and what we usually refer to as commercial Babylon in Revelation 18. We have religious Babylon in Revelation 17 and then commercial Babylon in Revelation 18. And some people try to conflate the two and say, well, it's the same thing. It's a redundant chapter where chapter 18 repeats things from chapter 17, and that's not the case at all. In chapter 17, religious Babylon is thrown down and the kings of the earth are thrilled. They're delighted to have it thrown down because uh, they, they actually were participating in throwing it down. They, uh, they, they don't want the, the religious Babylon system. They're, they're happy to replace it with Antichrist and his religion. Big difference though in chapter 18, because when commercial Babylon falls, it's, uh, it's the worst thing in the world. Now, the kings of the earth are going to be lamenting, they're going to be weeping, they're going to be, you can spot it in, uh, in verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 18, the kings of the earth uh, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, they will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So the downfall of, of the chapter 18 Babylon is a horrible thing for the political leaders of the earth at that time. They hate it. They're, ter- they're horrified by the idea that the whole economic system of the, of the one world economy has just collapsed. They think that's terrible. Um, different aspect in, in chapter 17, when they throw religious Babylon down, they're thrilled to do it. They take part in doing it. And uh, yeah, they, uh, they're, they're happy for that. All right. So it's in this context then of Revelation 18 and, and commercial Babylon then that believers, believers with doctrine are told, get out of there. They're about to be destroyed and you don't want to take part in that. And so the warning comes in verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. And so this is the warning to, uh, to depart, to not be in commercial Babylon when it is, uh, comes under the judgment function of the justice of God. When he wipes them out, he's going to wipe them out in a, in a single night. It's going to be a, a, an immediate sudden destruction. And uh, those that need to flee should have done so before this night of destruction comes. And so that's the warning there. But just like Ephesians, sun quinaneo is rendered participate in, participate in. And so really we could even use the same rendering, I think, in Philippians 4.14 when Paul says, nevertheless you have done well to participate in my afflictions. Uh, nothing wrong with that I don't think, but to share in my afflictions is what he's talking about because when they sent the funds it was, it was the external evidence that internally, spiritually, they were sharing in his afflictions. Weeping with those who weep and, and uh, suffering with those who suffer. That's what we're called to do. When one member suffers, we all suffer. That's how the body of Christ is designed. 
And so really the money that gets sent is only the icing on the cake. It's like the it's uh, just the outward expression of the inward reality that they that they were supportive of Paul and his and his struggles. All right. Beyond the verb, we also have uh, a noun. We have the term soon quenonos, uh, which is a partner, a partaker, a fellow partner. And uh, this is an expression that we have uh, also in Revelation. While I'm here, I'll take these slightly out of order, but I'm already in Revelation. So Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker, soon quenonos, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus. That's a marvelous expression. I like that. I like the fact that if you're a believer in the church age, that makes you, uh, you know, a fellow partaker in church age tribulation and church age kingdom and church age perseverance. Not, uh, of course, eschatological tribulation. We're clear on that. Anyway, that's the term there. Likewise, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.23, called here a fellow partner. Do you remember who this fellow partner is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? The, um, well, Paul's using himself in this context, but he's got some, uh, some partners with him. But he says in verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And that's soon koinonos. And really I think the fundamental idea that underlies all these usages is, is the idea of identification. The idea that you identify with your brother that's struggling. You identify with the church itself and that uh, we participate in these things. The last expression we'll see is in Romans 11 and verse 17. Romans 11 and verse 17. And uh, boy, here's a chapter that gets a lot of bad approaches. <laughs> All right. The olive tree. What's the olive tree? It's not Israel. Okay. The Jewish branches that get broken off, they don't get severed from Israel. They're still in Israel, even though they're unbelieving Jewish branches. All right. And we, when we get grafted in, what do we get grafted into? We don't get grafted into Israel. Okay. Anyway, there's so many bad approaches to this tree in this chapter. But um, in any event, verse 17 says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. All right. So the fact is, is that the root is drawing nourishment from the ground, the, the root, and, and that's where the source of that nourishment is coming from. And the root then sends it up the trunk and out to the branches. And if you're snapped off, well, there goes your connection to the, to the root. All right. There goes your connection to the root. And uh, remember when we taught this in the Romans class, that we're talking about our stewardship function in the plan of God. That Israel had a stewardship function in their day and age, we have a stewardship function in our day and age, and the root speaks of our stewardship and the power, the provision that comes, the nourishment that comes as we exercise our stewardship function. In any event, uh, you are grafted in among them and became partaker with them. That's soon partaker with them. So 
really, if you're a, an artificial branch and you get grafted into this tree, uh, that's pretty close, right? I mean, how, how close can you get? More close than that than being grafted into a tree. And uh, that's how we should be identifying with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're fellow partakers with one another. And when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member is honored, we're all honored. And that's our, our blessing to participate. All right. So the synchronized fellowship of Paul's afflictions. That means you name the name of Christ, you identify with a particular flock or a particular lampstand, and then, come what may, um, you know, when the, when the flaming missiles come in, that's you're part of that, Right? You're in that boat. You're in that in that circumstance. See, and I don't know. Um, different believers have different convictions when it comes to, to church membership. But in my mind, um, you know, and, and easy for me to say since I'm the pastor. And uh, and you know, it's pretty undeniable when the when the attack comes in, and you know, the government's going to haul us away to prison or whatever. I'm probably the worst one around here to deny that I'm a part of this church, right? It's just kind of obvious. And so uh, good luck with that. But, um, but think about it though. If, if, if they start hunting down members of Austin Bible Church and taking us off for a re-education camp or whatever, you know, then some folks here are going to have that volitional opportunity to uh, be like Peter and say, I don't know the man. I, you know, what are you talking about? I, I was never there. And, uh, and so it's, it's really it's a sense of identification. Who do you identify with? And the fact is, is that we're a body together and, and, uh, and, and that's the way it goes. So I think, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to implement anything like, you know, it's not like wedding vows. You're not really going to say for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. But I mean, the concept is certainly there. If uh, if this flock is is under attack, are you gonna you gonna identify with this flock and say I'm with them, put me in jail too, or are you gonna say uh, no I'm not with them I'm I'm over here you know um, it 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 is a matter of identification, and that's uh, really uh, Hebrews thirteen addresses this when it talks about not neglecting to show hospitality to strangers, and then it says remember the prisoners as though in prison with them? Well, why are they in prison? The circumstance here is that they're suffering for their faith. And uh, those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. So, you know, you've got a choice. You can identify. Moses chose to identify with the people of God rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. He could have easily said, oh, I'm not with them. I'm, I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm an I'm a, I'm a Egyptian. You know, but no, he identified with God's people, and he he suffered ill treatment because of it, and uh, it's a great pattern I think for all of us to uh, to recognize. All right, so this is sub point A then synchronized fellowship of Paul's afflictions. Sub point B then financial missionary support is called fellowship sharing. That's what it's called, koinonia, fellowship sharing in the matter of giving and receiving. I like this expression in verse 15. Financial missionary support is called fellowship sharing in the matter of giving and receiving. And in the matter of. It's uh, one of the unusual uses of logos where logos is not translated word. 
Logos is translated as matter or thing or uh, affair or arrangement. It's really it's a reflection from Davar in the Hebrew. But um, anyway, in the in the matter of, in the word of, giving and receiving. That's what it's about, giving and receiving. Uh, as A.T. Robertson said, this is actually a mercantile metaphor. Uh, it actually speaks of credit and debit. It speaks of accounts that you have uh, as, a, as an accountant would keep track of in, in accounts receivable or accounts payable. And uh, so he talks about it here and he says uh, uh, in verse 15, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that in the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me, koinonia, it's fellowship. No church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving. That's the logos of um, doseos kai lemseos is what you have here. The matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Alright. And so this is really, it's useful for us to recognize that the concept of fellowship is pretty broad. The concept of fellowship can encompass a lot of things. And it can encompass ministry, uh, uh, he talks about fellowship of sufferings, he talks about fellowship of money, he talks about fellowship of ministry, he talks about fellowship of the gospel, and, and different things that you have fellowship in. Well, that's what financial missionary support is about. And I want us to have that same attitude here. And uh, when we have uh, Fassel and Carrie in town this weekend, it's, it's a matter for fellowship. And we have that fellowship when they're with us and when they're not with us. We still have that fellowship with them. And when we support them financially, that is a fellowship application because we, are, we have that in common. We have that vested interest in, in what they're doing. And we're taking part in what they're doing. Think about it. Every Pakistani kid that gets saved, we have a part in that because we're fellowshipping with them in their evangelistic endeavors. And uh, I count that as an honor, as a privilege related to, you know, would you want to go live in a country that's 99% Muslim? 1% Christian, that's 1% nominal Christian. And then you take that 1% nominal Christian and you got to, you know, a lot of that's just cultural. They were born of Christian parents in a Christian village and so they're labeled as the 1% Christians in that land. They haven't placed their faith in Christ. They don't know the gospel. They don't know what it means to, to be saved. So, you know, take that 1% of Pakistan and how many are evangelical? Now you've got a fraction of a fraction. And we're participants in that. We're partakers of that. And that, to me, that's a privilege. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. All right. And so we have it. In fact, this metaphor comes back again when he talks about the profit and loss statement in verse 17. Not that I seek for the gift itself, but I seek for the profit. And uh, that's half of that idiom from verse 15 when he talks about the matter of giving and receiving. So it's a matter of receiving. It's a matter of profiting which increases to your account. And uh, completely at odds with how the world would, would track it. The world would say, look, you sent money there, they profited and you lost. God says, no, you sent money there, you profited. You profited because it's more blessed to give than to receive. You profited in the spiritual ledger of how this works. And so uh, we'll deal with that as well. But it's a fellowship uh, sharing in financial realms. And we have other things like that as well in other uh, passages that address that. All right. Then thirdly, sub point C, 
The Philippian Grace financial support was Paul's only financial support during a significant stage of his second missionary journey. The Philippian Grace financial support was Paul's only financial support during a significant stage of his second missionary journey. And this uh, gets detailed for us in Acts 17, uh, verse 1, all the way down to Acts 18 and verse 5. Also 2 Corinthians eleven nine 9 addresses that. And of course the passage here in verse 15, no church shared with me except you alone, but you alone. Even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Thessalonica was a grace ministry. Thessalonica was, they weren't a Corinth or a schismatic church, they were a solid church. They were, uh, they were a grace ministry, but they lacked the opportunity. Their funds got tied up. We'll see that here in a moment. And so, uh, th- so in Thessalonica, Paul did some tent making, he did some work, and uh, he didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. He, um, you know, he worked to support himself, and then uh, some cash came from Philippi, and that freed him up. Same thing happened in Corinth. He was a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth until some cash came from Philippi and that freed him up. And when the cash came in, he was freed. And when it didn't come in, he went back to work again. That was his, uh, that was his privilege in the body of Christ. So they were his only financial support. Let's look at Acts 17. And actually we can look at the end of Acts 16. Kind of fix our bearings there. But it's interesting to me. Uh, we've got some missionaries that we support, and their support is dwindling. I, you know, he'll never write about it. He won't talk about it. But John Eichmann is one of our supported missionaries, and he's got fewer supporters now than he's ever had in a long, long time. And uh, it's a ministry that uh, has had a lot of elderly supporters, and they keep going to heaven. And uh, and so each one that goes to heaven, and then that diminishes, and that diminishes, and that diminishes. And uh, as far as lampstands goes, now he's not as desperate as Paul is at this point because Paul had one church and one church only. Um, but it's, you know, it approaches that. And when you approach that, you know, do you, do you get nervous? Or do you just keep looking to the Lord? you keep walking by faith? Trusting that He knows what He's doing. Alright. So at the end of chapter 16, of course this is when he's in Philippi. And uh, he's put in jail and the jailer gets saved. We call him the Philippian jailer because he worked in the jail in Philippi. Yeah, this is where the church was. They get released and then they have to leave town. And that's how chapter 16 comes to a close. So they're leaving town. And uh, when they had traveled through Amphipolis or Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now they just passed through those regions. There's no record that they preached there. They just traveled through there. Later on in the late 1st century, early 2nd century there will actually be a remarkable church in Apollonia. Uh, but as far as we know in the New Testament era it wasn't there yet. Um, anyway, they come to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom he went to them and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And so you know, if you've got a gospel message and you've got a crowd of people that are already oriented to the Old Testament, that's a good place to start, right? And many of them could already be saved in the sense of Old Testament salvation. They could already be saved as Old Testament believers looking forward to the coming Messiah. Now Paul has to come and tell them, by the way, <laughs> Messiah came, all right? He came and he died on the cross and he's back in heaven again and uh, you need to enter into the church. That's the, 
that was a huge ministry in, in uh, first century uh, Christianity. And so he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And uh, then he says, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And so that's kind of a unique form of evangelism. We don't do this today. You and I are not going to encounter an Old Testament believer today. Okay? There's nobody that old. So, but in the first century they would encounter a lot of Old Testament believers. And they got saved believing Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. They got saved it before the cross. You understand the difference? We get saved after the cross. We look back to Jesus who died on the cross. And we believe in Christ for eternal life. They were looking forward. And Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. And so they would trust in Christ like we trust in Christ. Huge difference though if you're saved and then you find out that He came, you know, while well, you weren't looking. <laughs> well, I mean, you're living here in Thessalonica, what do you know? And they're over there in, in Jerusalem. And then you find out, oh, He came? Well, why didn't He set up the kingdom? Why, you know, why is the kingdom not here? How come? Yeah, well, because, well, yeah, He came and we crucified Him. Oh, okay, that's a problem. All right, now what? And you can imagine uh, that uh, this is a problem for Old Testament believers. So uh, this is what Paul's doing. So he's reasoning with them, he's explaining and giving evidence. And, and there's a place for that. Uh, it's not really our method. We're, not, we're here to preach the gospel. Christ crucified. Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's, that's, you know, we're not here to debate them or to convince them to become New Testament believers instead of Old Testament believers. But anyway, this is what Paul was doing. So, some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. One thing you don't see there is pistuo. You don't see believe. They didn't believe. They didn't get saved. They didn't receive eternal life in verse 4. But they were persuaded, and so they changed their thinking. They adjusted from an Old Testament mindset to a New Testament mindset along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. Now stay tuned, we got some sons of Belial lessons coming up in Proverbs. And uh, it's kind of harsh language, but it is, it's given like that in, in, in Proverbs. And uh, Belial's and sons of Belial's are uh, worthless, wicked fellows. And you can find them in different places. Um, and, and they're useful if you are also wicked and you need to form a mob. And so they did that here. And uh, set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason they were seeking to bring them out uh, to the people. But when they did not find them, now that I think is remarkable. You know, if you're, are you going to hide the Apostle Paul? Are you going to hide Timothy and, and Sylvanus and these, this traveling team? You know, all you got to do is give them up. Your problems go away. And that they didn't give them up. They had them hidden, see. And uh, that's extraordinary. I think that's marvelous. And so when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And that's, uh, I, I think that's a testimony right there. You always know what Satan hates by what he's mad at and what he's attacking. And then so Jason has welcomed them. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. So they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities when they heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason, that's money, that's cash right there. 
when they received a pledge from Jason and the, and the others. Jason's not the only one. I think they were taking extortion money from all these people. You know, tell us where Paul is. Okay, pay up. You, you, tell, you say you don't know? All right, pay up. So they received a pledge from Jason and the others. They released them. So in any event, so they, they fled. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. And understand, in doing so, that's an act of faith. They could have turned them in, gotten their money back, gotten their pledge back. So they sent them away by night. And, uh, and different things. All right. Now in connection with the Philippians, keep in mind that all the money that they just spent is money they can't give to Paul. <laughs> all right. Love to support you in your missionary journey, Paul, but we're already, you know, our funds are locked up here with the city authorities in Thessalonica. So the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Timothy's not mentioned, all right? We know he goes with them because they send him back, uh, but he's not mentioned by name. And uh, it appears that he was not on the arrest warrant. It appears that he was so young that he wasn't a uh, concern to the synagogue leaders. I find that interesting. All right. So they go to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Let's do this again. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. In Thessalonica there were some. It seems like in Berea it was everybody. In Berea it was, wow, let's look at this. And they're searching the Scriptures to see if these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the Word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also... They came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So hunting them down to the next town. Not content just to run them out of that town, but follow them to the next town. Bring your mob with you, all right? So immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. That's how we know Timothy was part of the the Thessalonica departure, because he's mentioned there in verse 14. And so... um, Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. That's why Paul's alone when he does his sermon on Mars Hill. That's why his whole team is scattered. And what we're going to learn actually is uh, he changes his mind. And uh, when when Silas and and, uh, Timothy finally join him, uh, Paul changes his mind and says, you know what, I I want to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. Let's see if we can sneak him back into town since he wasn't on that arrest warrant. Let's see if he can go back in. And he does. He goes in there and he teaches Bible class. Probably a 10-year-old kid. Can you imagine? And yet uh, they had humility to, to learn from Timothy because he'd been traveling with Paul. He knew, he knew his doctrine. And they were humble to receive the word. So this is what it comes down to. And then we get to the experience here in Athens and the, um, the process here. Uh, the Sermon on Mars Hill, this tomb to the unknown God. Um, anyway, then he gets laughed at. He leaves. It's kind of a low point when he leaves Athens. Uh, get to uh, chapter 18. After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had been kicked out because uh, Caesar banished all the, the Jews out of, out of Rome. Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So he came to them. 
And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Now there's a coincidence. <laughs> and uh, his whole team is scattered. His financial support is, is uh, you know, the only one supporting him at that point was, uh, was Philippi. And so he starts making uh, tents. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so here's his ministry. But then, good news, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, now not only is his team together, but uh, they've got cash in hand from Philippi. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So he didn't have to be a tent maker when he had the support that came from the Philippians. Anyway, these are the things we look at. This is what we teach when we're training men for the ministry, when men are learning how to be pastors and things. They may end up tent making, and particularly in the sense of, of uh, the church age and the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Uh, let's face it, uh, doctrinal churches aren't the biggest churches in town. And uh, when I look at all the churches in our Poimenike prayer list, how many of them have full-time supported pastors? Or how many of them are working outside the church or their wives are working outside the church or um, it's, it's kind of popular to get a retired uh, army chaplain or somebody that's got a military pension so that he can live on that while he's pastoring your small church and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Austin Bible Church is very blessed to have the, the uh, provision that we have here uh, to have a pastor. So that's, uh, that's something to rejoice over. Give, give God the glory on that. That uh, that uh, he's provided for it here the way that he has. All right, so that gets us down through 18 and verse 5. There was also just a passing reference made in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, 9, I think is worth looking at. The Corinthians were really, um, they were schismatic. They didn't have, they weren't walking in grace. They weren't, uh, they had a lot of issues. And uh, it really only one fourth of them were following Paul anyway. You know, the others were supporting Apollos or Cephas. And um, so he talks about the fact that he was with them and he wasn't charging them. He says, uh, did I, verse seven, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. He said, I was doing that for your sake. He had the right to claim support as an apostle, but he never did. They didn't have the grace to handle it. So why, why, uh, why try to get money from people that aren't grace-oriented anyway? What, what's that going to do? And then he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Now technically I guess that's not exactly true, but as an idiom, as an expression, it's not a bad way to, to put it, to express it, in a sense. I mean, they should view themselves as, as stealing from the Philippians, you know, because uh, other churches were supporting Paul and they weren't giving him a nickel in, uh, in that. So I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And we're going to see that in Philippians 4, that uh, my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He does so again and again and again. So when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you. And I will continue to do so. 
even writing 1 Corinthians they had not repented, writing a letter in between the 2 Corinthians and writing 2 Corinthians they still had hang-ups in, uh, in these things. So the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows that I do. So he's going to continue to not take any money from the Corinthian church and uh, issues there. Alright. Anyway, we dealt with that in the Second Corinthians series way back once upon a time. Alright. Subpoint D. In the realm of grace giving it is the giver that eternally profits in the heavenly ledger. In the realm of grace giving it is the giver that eternally profits in the heavenly ledger. And you know, if Philippians 4.17 was the only verse that dealt with this, then we might be tempted to think, well, is that exactly true? Or, uh, well, you know. But we have passage after passage after passage whereby the principles that God lays down make it clear in, uh, in different ways that there's God's wisdom and there's the world's wisdom. There's temporal life and there's spiritual life. And oftentimes what, how the world looks at things is backwards from how God looks at things. And uh, you know, we look at things and, and it's not many mighty uh, that, uh, as in the world's estimation, not many wise, not many powerful. And uh, he, he chooses the weak things to shame the strong, the, the foolish things to shame the wise, the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. And, and so when God operates on this basis, it becomes really inexplicable to, uh, to the carnal mind or to the world's mind who can't understand these things. But in the realm of grace giving, it is the giver that eternally profits in the heavenly ledger. So again, Philippians 4.17, he says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit that increases to your account. And there is no CPA in all of the Roman Empire <laughs> that would have looked at them sending funds to Paul and marking it down as Paul's debt in the Philippians uh, increase, the Philippians gain. But that's how God writes it down. The Philippians are the ones that profited by supporting the Apostle Paul. And that's what he was rejoicing over. How about Proverbs nineteen seventeen? An Old Testament passage. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. We were talking this morning about some financial issues too. We're not this far yet. We're still in chapter sixteen related to that, but talking about work and the benefits of work and diligence and the privilege of diligence and how when we work we're imitating the Father because the Father's a worker and when we're diligent we're imitating the Father because the Father's not a slug. You know, He works and then He rests to teach the principles and then He works some more. And so some of those things we were looking at in chapter 16. But here what does it say? It says, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. So what are you really doing? If you're gracious to a poor man, okay, that's in the earthly realm, that's in temporal life, but it says lends to the Lord. See, in the spiritual realm, what are you doing? What's the spiritual reality behind the earthly activity? You know, because God's not broke, He doesn't need our money. But in a sense, if you think of it this way, 
What you're doing in the earthly realm has a reflection. We're going to see Paul uses priestly language when he talks about a sweet-smelling savor and an acceptable offering. That in, in God's record book, he counts this as giving to him. So there's profit in that, right? Are you laying up treasures in heaven? How do you lay up treasures in heaven? You know, I know how to put treasure, I know how to put deposits into the A-plus Federal Credit Union, but how do I, where's the direct deposit to, uh, to, to, to heaven? Well, here's one method. Be gracious to the poor. Be gracious to the poor. All right. He will repay him for his good deed. Now, don't do what the name it and claim it crowd does or the sensational crowd does. They, you know, they'll use this, they'll use cast your bread upon the water. They come up with a formula. They think that it's going to come back to you sevenfold or a hundredfold or whatever. They think that, uh, that you, can, you can manipulate God like a genie in a bottle or something, that you can hold him, that now he owes you. Not like that, all right? If that's how you're giving, then you're not giving graciously. You've got to be giving graciously to the poor and God will repay. And uh, for his good deed, you're going to find gold, silver, and precious stones purified at the, at the great judgment seat of Christ. And uh, the repayment is going to be eternal in, uh, in scope. So I can appreciate that. How about Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 19 through 21. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. What's another word for thesaurus? You ever wonder? <laughs> anyway, thesaurus is the Greek word for treasury. And this is a treasury. This is where, where your treasure is. All right. So do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and ruts destroy, where thieves break in and steal. If you're the Ebenezer Scrooge that's just hoarding and hoarding and hoarding and never have a nickel for for anyone, that's the wrong attitude. All right, and uh, it says, "Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven." And how do we do that? Yeah, well, we had a clue in Proverbs, and there's other clues we have elsewhere. Um, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break or steal, it's the best bank around. It's uh, fully secure. It's, it's better than FDIC insurance. That's only good up to whatever hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, whatever they do. Who cares? It's it's better than FDIC. Okay. It's heaven. Who's going to break into that? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's what it comes down to. And this is your biggest clue too as far as are you heavenly minded? Are you earthly minded? How are you handling your finances? And if you're just earthly minded and you're, you're, you're stingy, well then that's one thing and that's pretty clear. But if you're heavenly minded and you're gracious, then that becomes evident as well. And so I think we have the principle related there. Anyway, some of these just preach themselves. They get simple. Luke 14. So um, I like this one. And this one's unique to Luke. It's not found in Matthew or Mark or John. This is uh, a marvelous story here. And it's really, it's an expression of humility. I like the, story, the parable before this one in, in 7 through 11. That's another good one. If you're invited to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. It's, you know, unless your name is on it. It's probably not for you anyway. 
and uh, someone more distinguished than you may have been invited. So if you just assume you're the, the most important guy invited to this party, you're in for a disappointment. <laughs> All right? Just show up assuming you're the least important guy there and really don't even deserve to be there. And then, uh, then he'll promote you and that goes better. But the principle being, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then an extension of that comes in the realm of finances. He went also on to say to the one uh, who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return, that will be your repayment. A lot of times social circles just serve to reinforce themselves and they become methods whereby you can uh, network and, and reach out and earn some favors and and uh, you know if you throw a good enough party here then you can get invited to another party here and then it's just uh, all it is is just business arrangements. What he says is when you give a reception invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You know if they're on your guest list and you realize that you are blessing them, you are benefiting them, and there is no way in the world they're going to pay you back, or, re, or it's not coming, uh, you know, you're not networking with, uh, with the, uh, the beggars. He says, then you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Another good clue for how to lay up treasure in heaven when that repayment comes. Anyway, so this is... Uh, Another issue. If your Christian service is, has in the back of your mind what your payback's going to be like or what you're going to get from it or, or anything, like that, that's, that's just the wrong way of thinking. We should just be sacrificially serving others and especially the least among you. Those that we know have no repayment options in their future at all. Anyway. So we have the, uh, the doctrine there. I like that text. How about 1 Timothy 6? 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Instruction for those who are rich. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. <laughs> you know, we have different standards of living, right? And, and, and America's the worst because we're the, we're the wealthiest, right? I mean, it's terrible. And, and you go to somewhere else, I, when I, Bob was 16 when I took him to the Philippines, and wow, he saw dirt floors, and he saw uh, jungles, and he saw grass huts and different things, and he realized, wow, we are so rich, we are so blessed and so provided for. And it's, it's a good context. And so it's not a matter of being, you could be the richest guy in, in uh, I don't know, pick a poor country, right? Uh, and, and, and the richest guy in Haiti, okay? Wow, you know, or the richest guy in, it's, it's quite a bit different. You know, you could be the richest guy in Haiti and you're still pretty poor by American standards, is what I'm trying to say. Well, what the scripture says though is if you're rich in this present world. <laughs> so that just, that, that encompasses everybody. And uh, the richest guy in this present world, well, don't be conceited. Don't be prideful. It's not because you're so great that God wanted you to be that rich. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. I mean, is it your bank account? Is that where your faith is? Your, your diversified portfolio? You think you're insured against everything? And, if, and, and you're so diversified that no matter what crashes, something else will still thrive and you're okay, you can stay afloat? No, it's the uncertainty of riches. 
Fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. The purpose why He's provided it is to be enjoyed, to be shared in the Christian fellowship of the body of Christ. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. See, some people are earthly rich and they're miserable because they're not exercising those riches in the way that God designed it. They're designed to be enjoyed. And they have no enjoyment because they're totally terrified they're going to lose it tomorrow. Or they're totally terrified that, that someone's going to take it from them. Or they're totally terrified that of whatever. See, now, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And you can, as Paul said, I learned the secret of, of being humbled. You could enjoy very little when you identify that God gave it to you and you're thankful for the grace. And so you've got enjoyment that, uh, that the rich guy doesn't have. So instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that for which is life indeed. You know, you can't take it with you. And so it's, it's, you know, you, you, when you have the wrong attitude and you leave, Jesus called that man a fool and said, tonight your soul is required of you. And now who's going to have all these barns you just built for yourself? And he didn't lay up any treasure in heaven. All right, see that we lay hold of that which is life indeed. Finally, Hebrews 10, 34. I'm running out of time. Hebrews 10, 34. Verse 32 says, Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. These guys really were Levitical priests. Then uh, when they were enlightened... As Acts chapter 6 says they were, a great number of priests came to faith in Christ and uh, it was a tough time to be a priest naming the name of Christ after His resurrection. They had to leave town. And um, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Here's, Here's tribulational fellowship. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners Remember all those people Paul was, Saul of Tarsus was throwing into jail? Some of those Levitical priests sh- were showing sympathy for the, those that named the name of Christ. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. There's a contrast for you. You know, um, you see people and they survive a, a house fire or they lose everything they have and, uh, and that they testify that hey it's just earthly stuff. You know, and uh, that's, that's a good testimony there because it reflects the uh, spiritual realm over the, the physical realm. All right. Well, we'll come back to this. Not Sunday. I'm giving Fassel the Sunday morning message. So uh, we won't have Philippians Sunday morning, but we will come back to this a week from today. And we'll be looking at the priestly me- uh, references that are found in uh, the sweet smelling savor and the acceptable sacrifice, the priestly function of grace giving that's also dealt with here in Philippians chapter 4. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessings we have to study, to show ourselves approved. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are here tonight, that are hungry for the Word of God. Uh, Pray that you be at work in the appetite for all of us, Father, that uh, if we have a diminished appetite, increase that appetite so we desire to feast more and more upon your truth. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.